I'm going to read to you again James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. That's where we're going to pick up where we left off last time we were together. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, if you remember last time we were together, we looked at the fact that if God desires to use suffering in our lives to accomplish His purposes, then we need God's wisdom in our trials. And so we need to understand, I think a lot of us over the years have taken James chapter 1, and we talked about, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. And then we took verses 5 through 8 as a separate section. If any of you lacks wisdom, let them ask God. And then the verses after that we took as the next section. And I think that as I've been studying this and preparing to teach the book of James, remember James is being led of the Spirit to write this letter, and he's writing, and it's a continual thought through. And I think they're all tied together. The trials are to have us also grow in wisdom. And so if we lack wisdom, we're going to ask God. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. But I want to remind you of the fact that we must believe that God will give us, will give us wisdom in our situations. Don't forget, the Bible promises that you must believe that He will and not doubt. We're not going to spend too, too much time on that because I think so many people start worrying about whether or not they have enough faith and enough belief. The moment you start thinking, am I believing enough, your faith becomes in what? In your faith. You understand what I'm saying? If you start thinking, well, maybe I need to believe more. No, the Bible's real clear, folks. Jesus said when Peter uh, stepped out of the boat, you know, because Jesus had told him to, and then he takes his eyes off of Jesus and puts it on the wind and the waves. Jesus says, you have little faith. Now, most of us would say he sounded like he had great faith. He stepped out of a boat in a storm. But Jesus said he had little faith. And then in the very next chapter, that's chapter 14 of Matthew, chapter 15, Jesus says to this woman who was a Gentile, and he, she said, you're, she said uh, when he called her a dog, he said, she said, then I'll be a dog. Because even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And if that's the only way I can get what you have for me, I'll be a dog. And Jesus said, you have great faith. So wait a minute, Peter steps out of the boat in the middle of a storm and he's told he has little faith. The woman says, I'll just take crumbs, and she's told she has great faith. Yet if you go to chapter 17, Jesus makes another statement. He said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved and it'll move. Well, if you've ever seen a mustard seed, if I had one on my tip of my finger right now, none of you would see it. It's that small. So listen to what Jesus just said. He said, if you have faith that tiny, you can move mountains. So the size of your faith really doesn't have a lot to do with you, does it? Actually, the definition of great faith versus little faith is the size of your God. Not how much faith you have, but how big your God is. If you have a big God, you have great faith. If you have a small God in your mind, you have little faith. And let's test that against what Jesus just said. Remember, in that situation, Peter, the Bible says, looked at the wind and the waves. And all of a sudden, the wind and the waves got bigger in Peter's eyes, and Jesus got smaller, and his faith shrunk because the size of his God shrunk. The woman said, you're so big and so powerful. If I just get scraps from you, that's all I need. She had great faith. Folks, let me just tell you, you don't need more faith. A lot of you are like me, getting a little older, and you have to go to the doctor more. 
And when you go to the doctor, they prescribe you medicine and the doctor will write a prescription for you. And he'll write something on a piece of paper and you can't read it. Their, their, their scribble looks like hen scratch. And you take a piece of paper that you can't read to a person you don't know who's got a room full of medicine that could kill you. And you hand them that piece of paper. They look at what it says. And the note, by the way, could say, kill this person and have lots of fun doing it. You don't know. And they go into a room full of pills, put them in a bottle and say, put these in your mouth and you go home and do. So don't think you need more faith. You need to have a bigger God. And so what James is saying here is believe that he will. If God is big and powerful and he's trustworthy, he has promised he will give wisdom to those that don't doubt. Go ahead. Mm hmm. I love that. That's a great. She, she said, expand on the man that said, I believe, help my unbelief. We all have enough faith, yet we do need our faith. The Bible talks about our faith growing. But how does the Bible say that our faith is grown? Through trials. Right. But he's the one who does it through trials and through testing of your faith. That's going to produce more faith. And so when God proves himself over and over and over, we become stronger in our faith. And so what James is saying here is believe that he will give wisdom and don't doubt. Because the person that doubts, well, what they're really saying is, is I'm not really sure God says what he really means. You see what I'm saying? You've, you've belittled the word of God. If he said he will give wisdom, he will give wisdom. But I want to talk tonight about this aspect of what James is saying. He's promised that he'll give what? We've just said it. Wisdom. But when we see James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, we read it as, he'll give me the answer that I want. I want God to answer this question, and I believe God's going to answer. No, no, no. He didn't say that he'd give you the answer to your question in the way you wanted it. Notice that I didn't say the answer to your specific question. Job had some questions, didn't he? Job had some questions he wanted answered. And God did show up, but even though Job never got his questions answered the way he thought he would, Job got wisdom. And that was the answer he really needed. Go to Job chapter 38 real quick. We're not going to take the time to break this down too much, but I want you to see what, go, what goes on here. Job went through a few trials. And in Job chapter 38, Look at verses 1 through 3. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. So let me set the stage. Job, if you've read the book of Job, he starts off really good. Naked I came into the world, naked I returned and continued to worship the Lord. But as the trial continued, what was really down in the depths of his heart started to come out. And he just said, I don't think this is fair. He said, who can contend with God if I, I wish I could have a face to face with God and ask him a few questions. And uh, how many of you over the years have said one day when I get to heaven, I've got a few questions I'm going to ask God and I'll say, no, you won't. So God shows up and says, I understand you wanted to ask me a few questions. You've got a few things that you don't understand that you don't like about how I do things. I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you answer your questions. Let me ask you a few first. Dress yourself like a man. You'd contend with me. Look at chapter 40. Look at chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? 
He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I'll proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Isn't that interesting? God knew exactly what Job was doing when he said, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is fair. What he was really saying was, if I were God, I wouldn't do it this way because I'm smarter than God. And God says, hey, you wanted to ask me a few questions. I'm going to let you ask them in just a little bit. But let me ask you a couple. Ones. Are you going to put me in the wrong so you can justify yourself? Folks, there's a ton of stuff in this world we don't understand. And when we start thinking, well, that's not how I would do it. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair. And we have an issue with God. And don't anybody pretend you don't. We all wrestle with that in one level or another. It's in our flesh. Because we were infected with that same attitude of wanting to be God, determining right and wrong, good and evil. We'll get to the wisdom in just a little bit. Go to chapter 42 of Job. Look at verses 1 through 6. God's done now asking Job his questions, and he says, okay, Job, your turn. Then Job answered the Lord in chapter 42, verse 1, and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Those are the things that he had said. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. By the way, folks, we've got a few accounts of people who actually got to see God. Isaiah's one. What was his reaction? Woe is me. I live among a people of unclean lips, and I, I'm a man of unclean lips. Gideon, when he realizes he's seen God, is fearful. John, who's on the Isle of Patmos, doesn't say, hey, buddy, but he falls at his feet as though dead. Ezekiel was overwhelmed. Folks, we need a renewed understanding of the greatness of God. And if any of you are lacking wisdom, he will give it. But understand, wisdom does not mean the specific answer to the question you want answered in the way you want it answered. As you've heard many a preacher say, God will answer your prayers, but he'll say yes, no, or wait, or maybe, you know. But at the same time, there's a depth to it that we can't even get to. But God has promised wisdom. You know, in 2 Corinthians 12, we're not going to go there for the sake of time. Verses 7 through 10, Paul, because of the surpassing great revelations that he had been given and gotten to see heaven himself, and he wasn't allowed to talk about it. He was given a thorn in his flesh, a tormentor, a messenger from Satan to torment him. And he pleaded with God three times that God would take it away. What was God's answer? He said, no. He said, but not only no, he said, actually, my grace is sufficient for you. It's actually better for you that I leave this to keep you humble and reminded of the fact that I'm the great one and you're not. Oh, you've gotten to see some amazing things, things that others won't even get to see till their time in here. And I'm not even going to let you talk about what you saw. But 
to keep you from becoming conceited. I'm going to actually leave this trial, leave this, this suffering for the rest of your life. Even though you beg me not to, to, to take it away, you beg me to take it away, I'm going to leave it. Because you're going to find that my strength is emboldened in your life, in your weakness. And that's when Paul said, then bring on, bring on the suffering. I'll embrace my weaknesses. Some of you might have missed this. Paul got to see heaven. He also prayed for a miracle healing. And God says, I'm going to give you something better. Suffering so that you'll know my power. And what does Paul say? Bring on. Bring it on. Because I want to know him. I want to know him in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That's what he talks about in Philippians chapter 3. Paul was saying, Lord, I got a very specific question. Take this away. And God says, actually, I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to have you see things the way I want you to see things. I want you to see things in how I'm doing things. I'm going to give you a little bit more understanding so that you can keep going. But he didn't get the answer that he was looking for. We must believe, though, that God is good and will not withhold from us anything that we need and is good for us. I'm going to lay this out for you scripturally, and I want you to write these down. I want you to allow the Spirit of God to get these in your heart, because you won't pray properly if you don't really believe and understand these things that I'm about to share with you. Go to Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, look at verses 16 through 25. Paul's laying out this doctrine here, and he said, This is why, or that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Now, in the presence of, God, of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him weren't written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let me ask you a quick question. Does the Bible say that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he'll seal you with his spirit and you're guaranteed eternity in heaven? Hopefully you're not wrestling with that. You believe that, right? If you were to die today, you know you'd go be with Jesus because of your faith in Jesus and he sealed it with his spirit. You believe it, right? God wants you to believe the rest of his promises and the same things that he said in the same way. And one of the things that has hurt the church is we think Christianity is believing in Jesus and saying, we're going to heaven when I die. Praise the Lord. Oh, there's so much more. There's so much more that God has said you need to know about me and hang on to just like you hang on to your salvation and your faith in me that way. I'm going to give you a few of them. Go to Psalm 84. 
Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now, we got to be real careful that we don't rewrite the definition of blessing and honor and what we think it should be. But the Bible is very clear that those who trust in him, who walk uprightly, who have not only been given righteousness, but allow the spirit of God to live through them. What has he promised for those people? Blessing, honor, and no good thing will be withheld from you. I got to tell you something that happened this past weekend. Uh, My birthday is not till the end of the month of March here, but uh, because of my schedule and my fact that my wife and I and one of our daughters, Nicole, is going to be on a trip to Israel when my birthday happens, we celebrated my birthday this past weekend this past week and this past weekend, and the kids all came over, and, and, and one of our daughters came with her boyfriend, and we all went and ate at a restaurant at Disney, and I paid for everything. I'm not complaining. I had no problem pulling my wallet out, and it wasn't a cheap meal, and on top of that, I even said, you don't have to drink only water, you can buy a soda if you want a soda. And then after that, we went and played mini golf in one of the mini golf courses there, and when we got there, I paid for everything. And I'm not complaining. You know why? Because my kids, who are 29, 27, and 24, wanted to be with me. They weren't there begrudgingly. This was their idea. I didn't force it. But they wanted to spend the time with us. I couldn't pull my wallet out fast enough. Well, they knew I was paying. But they also knew that I was a generous dad. Do you understand? In the same way, if I who am evil know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more? The heaven, again, we're not going to turn this into you'll never be sick. That's not what the Bible talks about. We're not going to turn this into you'll be a millionaire. That's not what the Bible talks about. But we're so afraid of going the wrong way, we don't actually believe the full truth of the Bible. Folks, our God is a good God. And no good thing will he withhold from those who trust in him. And that means if we go through a trial, that is best. Because wisdom will help us understand he's got a greater purpose in this. At the time, it doesn't make sense. But we must believe these things. Go to Psalm 34. Look at verses 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Now, young lions even suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I'm not going to go there, but if you want to write it down, look at it later on. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Jesus teaches on this in much more detail as well when they were saying, come teach us to pray. John taught his disciples. If you reread Luke 11 with Jesus' teaching on prayer from the angle that the disciples came and said to Jesus, hey, John taught his disciples, could you teach us? In other words, we're afraid that you might not. But you know, you ever ever had your kids want to ask you for something, but they're afraid you're going to say no. So they said, Susie's parents are letting her. 
You go back and reread Luke 11 where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. John taught his disciples. It's almost like they come at it with an attitude of we're afraid you might not be willing, but we can twist your arm because Susie's parents are letting her. John taught his disciples. You go reread that section with that attitude. And Jesus then tells them the story about the friend that comes at midnight. And he doesn't get up and help him because he's his friend, but because of his persistence or his impudence. It's a hard word to translate, but it just simply means this. What Jesus tells in telling that story is, is the fact that this man saw him as someone that he could go to at midnight because of that attitude he responded. Let's just imagine you were broke down on the side of the road and your car was broke down and you didn't have AAA and it's four in the morning. Your brain is going to run through a Rolodex of people that you could call for help. But you're not going to just call anybody. You're going to call the one you know would be glad to do it and willing and able to help. You're not going to call so-and-so because if you call so-and-so, they may come, but you're going to owe them. You may not call another person because they may come, but they'll come and tell you all the things you should have done to take better care of your car. You're going to call the one that you not only know will be able to come help you at four in the morning, but would be glad to do it. And Jesus tells the story and says, you need to come to me with that kind of an attitude. That not only that you're able, but that you're willing and glad to do it. And then he goes and says, ask. Seek, knock. And then he says what I said earlier, if you who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We all know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but I don't think we do. I'm going to have you quote it with me, because I know you can. Trust in the Lord with all your heart in and lean, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he what? He what? He will direct your path. But spend a little time meditating on it. He will. He will direct your path. He will make your path straight. He'll make it clear. But we're to trust in the Lord with all our heart. We're never to lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him. He will. He will. He will. And it ties with James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you are lacking wisdom, let him ask God who gives what? Generously. Without finding fault. But don't doubt. Don't doubt. Don't think, well, he might not do it for me. Oh, Jim, he'll do it for you because, you know, he likes you better than he likes me. When you start going down that road, you've already started to say things about God that aren't true. Does God love you more than he loves the lost person? No. God so loved the world, he sent his only son. We get to experience the full benefits of his love. Those who are outside of Christ don't get to experience the full benefits of his love because they've chosen not to. But God is a God of love. And folks, when you understand that and when you take your eyes off of yourself and put them on him and you ask with that kind of faith, he'll give you wisdom. But again, remember, wisdom is not as much about us getting the answer to the questions we ask as much as getting to see things as God sees them and wants us to see them. We want information. When we pray, we say the word wisdom, but we actually want knowledge. And there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is like information. Wisdom is knowing how to apply it. 
What does the Bible say in the first Corinthians chapter eight about knowledge? Knowledge what? Puffs up. Love builds up. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have enough knowledge that I can understand all mysteries, but I don't have love, what's the point? What's the point? And so, folks, we need to understand that when we pray to God and ask him for wisdom, we're not asking as much for the specific answer. But there's nothing wrong with getting specific in your requests. But be ready for the fact that your God, who is big and knows things way more than you, may not answer your question specifically in the way you thought he would. But he'll give you wisdom. He'll give you understanding. Go to Proverbs chapter 2. I know a lot of people that have knowledge, but they lack wisdom. And I used to be one of those people as I was younger, and I'm hopefully getting better. Yep. Yep. The learning, learning, and learning is not it. You have to actually start to be applying it. Proverbs chapter 2. Listen to verses 1 through 10. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of, the, of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. My son, if you receive my words, listen again, and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will. You will. Do you see how it goes from that? You will. You will. You will. And so, folks, I want to challenge each of us to move a little bit deeper in our walks with the Lord into not a surface level of Christianity that says, Lord, I really need an answer about this one thing. Do I take this job or not? And I think you should pray that kind of prayer because God cares about that stuff. I've had people say, well, does God care about the little things? Name something that's big to God. The fact that we think, well, this is a little thing and that's a big thing. We've already shrunk God. You're of little faith. He's a big God. There's nothing that's big to him. It's all little. And so he knows that we're dust. He knows who we are. He knows how we're wired. And this goes back to your point, Sheila. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, I do believe, but I need to believe more. I do believe, but I need to believe more. I need your help in that. And the Bible talks about that God gives wisdom to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. He's designed it that, well, in, well go to Matthew chapter 11 real quick.
Verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now, wait a minute. How do I get to be one of those people that Jesus chooses to reveal the Father to? Well, He's already told you that. Come as a little child. Humble yourself and say, I want to know. I seek for this truth and wisdom like silver. I search for it like it's gold. Lord, I believe you will show me. Folks, if you're out there today and you're, you're watching and you're not been saved yet and you're wrestling with whether or not this stuff that you've been hearing is true, is the gospel true? Is there only one way to be saved? I'm going to tell you, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Ask and you will receive. God will give wisdom, but you've got to stop trying to be the smartest one in the room to figure it out. You've got to stop thinking it's only for those who have been to seminary. But actually, the Bible says he's, in his gracious will, revealed it to those who humble themselves like children. Oh, and by the way, you want to know who Jesus chooses to reveal them to? Not just children, but all who will come to him. Look what he says in the next verse. Come to me, who? All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think a lot of Christians have it a lot harder in this life than God ever intended them because they're trying to finish the work of Christ on their own. He's the author and the perfecter, the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one that begins it, and he's the one who finishes it. But just like you have to receive his grace like a child in order to be saved, you need to receive his grace on a daily basis for the Christian life like a child. We keep thinking, if I go to enough classes, if I take enough discipleship courses, or if I go to a seminary or take a Bible college, we're going to get there. Folks, you, you got it all wrong. The, this truth, this wisdom is available to anyone. And God says, I will give insight. I will give understanding. Don't be afraid to pray specific prayers, but believe that God's answer will be given. Just don't be surprised if he answers it in a way you didn't expect. But you'll come out with wisdom. And actually, that's what you need more than just a yes or no answer to your question. As you ask God for knowledge, really be seeking wisdom. I also put this in my notes. We also want information so we can decide what to do. A lot of you, when you pray, Lord, tell me what to do. You don't realize it, but part of the reason why you're asking that in that way is so that you can find out what his answer is. And then you can decide whether or not you like it. No, seriously. You want to know what he says, but you're going to weigh that into how you look at it, too. How often have you <laughs> asked someone, well, what about this? And they'll give you an answer and they'll go, oh, no, I don't want to do that. 
years ago, I w- when I graduated college, I had to do one more semester of student teaching. I got my degree from Fo- uh, Flagler College in St. Augustine, Florida in physical education. But to fully graduate, I had to do one semester of student teaching. And I did my student teaching at Mel High. James Greer, some of you might remember James Greer, was the phys ed teacher and, the P- and, and also the health teacher. And I was hooked up with him. And, and he and I worked together in my last uh, semester of college. And I was teaching a health class there right when the AIDS epidemic broke out. And again, everybody was afraid of how you could get it in every way. And a kid literally stood up in the middle of class and said, how do you not get it? He literally stood up in front of everybody in the class and said, how do you not get it? And I said, that's a great question and I have a great answer for you. Don't take any drugs. Don't stick any needles in your arm. Don't have sex with anybody until you're married. And then once you're married, only have sex with that person that you married and nobody else for the rest of your life, and you won't get AIDS. You know what the kid did? He sat down and said, well, I don't want to do that. He wanted an information, but he really wanted to know what the answer was so he could decide whether or not he was willing to do it. A lot of you, when you pray prayers and say, Lord, I need wisdom, I need understanding, I need an answer, he knows our hearts. That's why James says in the chapter 4, later on when we get there, he says, you ask and you don't receive because you're asking so that you can spend it on your own pleasures. You want my blessings, but you want to take my blessings and use them for what you have in mind, not what I have in mind. And so I want to just ask you to... As you seek wisdom on certain things, be willing to let God deal with some heart issues before he gives you your answer. Have you ever noticed that God made a lot of promises to people, but he had to work on them for a while until they were ready to receive the promises? And the same way, as we're asking God for things and seeking God, and he's pleased, he likes that, he wants that. He wants us to be continually coming to him. He's also going to be showing us the depth of our hearts. And where we're really at. And remember, we've already seen this earlier in our study of James. The trials have come to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. So in other words, there's something about us he's trying to pull out through the trial. That's what became very evident in the book of Job. There were some deeper things in Job's heart that came out through the trial. God wants to get to those things in your and my life as well. And wisdom... Well, let me just say this real quick. We want information so we can decide what to do. God wants to give wisdom so he can guide our steps and direct our paths. But wisdom is tied to submission. Wisdom is tied to submission. God's not going to give wisdom to someone that hasn't humbled themselves in order to be able to receive it. If God knows you're not ready for wisdom, he's not going to give it to you. Go to Luke chapter 2. Something very interesting about Jesus was said in Luke chapter 2. Look at verses 41 through 52. Luke 2, starting in verse 41. Now his, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. 
And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers and listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, this is too deep for us to try to break into tonight. But let me just say this to you, and hopefully it'll become more clear as we get deeper in James. Jesus, who is God, grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom and stature and understanding. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he learned obedience through what he suffered. There's an element that even though Jesus was God, when he took on the role of the servant and he humbled himself and he submitted himself to the role the father had for him, he had to learn some things as a human and experience some things as a human that would make him that wonderful, perfect high priest and able to understand all that we go through. But he was submissive to them. And he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. It's getting to know God more. Again, write this one down. We don't have time to dive into it too much tonight, but write down Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Paul has just finished saying that we have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In him you will receive the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having been sealed with the Holy Spirit, having believed you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance till we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 15, he says, having heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in your love toward all the saints, I pray for three things. Pray that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened and you receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know Christ Jesus better. Know the hope to which he's called you, the glorious inheritance that we have in the saints and his mighty power available for us who believe. Then he went on to describe that same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Do you see what he said? You've been saved. You've been sealed. You're guaranteed eternity. And I've heard of your faith and your love for each other. Here's my prayer my prayer is for you that you would come to know Jesus more. That you'd understand the hope to which he's called us. The glorious inheritance that we have in the saints, the family of Christ, and the mighty power available to us who what? Who believe. Now, this is where our humanity starts to get in, and we start taking believing into a realm that's unbiblical where we can just start, like you were showing me, commanding things and we can believe it enough, God has to do it. Folks, when you start saying that faith and belief means that you say it, God has to do it, you've become God. But you must also believe there's a lot of promises he's made for those of us who are in him. That's why those who know how to walk like this, who are growing in wisdom and understanding, like Peter, like Paul, like these men and women of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we're able to sing in the middle of a jail cell at midnight. We're able to stand there and be, be put to death for their faith with no fear. 
because they believed that God was able to do what he was able to do and that no man could thwart the plans of God and no good thing would he withhold. And at the same time, even if I die, that's the best. I go be with Christ. And so, folks, in order to move into this wisdom, you're going to have to let go of a lot of things that you're holding on to in this life in order to receive the wisdom of God. If you're still trying to hang on to your retirement and still trying to hang on to your, 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 your homestead and all these things that we try to build up here, one of the things that grieves me as I travel around the country and speak in different places and churches and conference centers is all the buildings that have people's names on them. I got no problem with the fact that we should remember men and women of faith, but to the point that we all of a sudden start making these shrines that can't be touched. We all of a sudden start hanging on to what was here. Y'all know that in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, when Hezekiah became king, he destroyed the Asherah poles, he destroyed the, uh, the Baal altars, and he destroyed the bronze snake that Moses had made in the wilderness. You can go double check and look at it. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. He destroyed the bronze snake that Moses had made in the wilderness. The Bible says, because the Jews had been worshiping it. And it had to be destroyed because it became an idol. Yo, Jesus still referenced the bronze snake years later with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. He still remembered what God had done in the past. But when we hold on to down here the things that God has done in the past, and you can't move that pew because my mama's name's on it. When we start holding on to what is here, we're not going to get wisdom. In order to receive God's wisdom, you need to be holding lightly the things that he's given you so that if he takes it away, he can replace it with what you really need. And again, this is going to be a journey for all of us at different levels. And I'm just going to say, let God take you there. And like I said, this is the major reason for the trials in our lives so that we can know Jesus better. And that's why we can count trials as what? Joy. Go to Philippians 3. I've been referencing it a lot tonight. Let me read it to you. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. Remember again who this was being written by. It's being written by Paul as he's writing from prison. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. He says, Whatever gain I had, I, had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you realize how much Paul lost when he became a believer in Jesus? Do you all realize how much he lost? He lost everything. Remember, he had been working his way up the ladder of Pharisee of Pharisees, taught by Gamaliel. He was head and shoulders of everyone. He was leading the group to kill the Christians. And when he became a Christian, everything that he had been spending all his years to achieve were lost. But he didn't consider it a loss. Because he now realized he had moved into a relationship with the creator of the universe. And he became a child of the king. And this world was not all there was. And he was living for the next. 
And therefore, even though Jesus said to Ananias, who was going to heal him of his blindness, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name, Paul became one who was full of wisdom. And because of that, he got to see things that a lot of us will never see till we get there ourselves. But even on this earth, he had an intimate relationship with the Father. And if you want to grow in your intimacy with Jesus, stop praying that the trial will just disappear and say, Lord, what is the purpose for this surgery? Surgery is not pleasant. It's painful. But it has a good purpose. Lord, I'm going through it feels like a surgery right now. What's the purpose? I need wisdom. I believe he'll give it to you. But don't put him on a timetable and say, you got till Thursday. Who becomes God then? You do. Lord, I believe you'll show me. And what is the Bible promise that he'll give us in the meantime that passes understanding? He'll give you a peace in the midst of that while you wait, believing that he will answer. He'll give you a peace that passes understanding. Go to James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We're going to finish our time tonight dealing with these verses. And I'm going to tell you right away, this is wisdom right here. It probably doesn't make sense to you yet. Hopefully it will by the end of our time we have tonight and the last 10 minutes we have. But this is wisdom right here. Here it says, the, it says this. It says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. We see it the opposite way. We see the rich as the exalted and the poor as the ones who are humiliated. But God knows that it's actually the opposite. Let me explain why. Go to James chapter 2. Look at verse 5. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in what? In faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. So in Luke, go to Luke 16 real quick, and then I'll, I'll lay this all out. Go to Luke 16, verses 19 through 25. In Luke, 16, Luke 16, verse 19 and following, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. By the way, they weren't comforting him. These are wild dogs. And as one man said, when a Doberman is licking you, he's not being nice, he's basting you. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now, I'm not going to take the time to break down the rest of that passage. But for those of you that taught there was a purgatory, keep reading. You'll find out there isn't one. But at the same time, the Bible says that actually the poor in this world, God has blessed with the ability to be rich in faith. Why? 
Because when you are poor, you know you're poor. I've always heard people say, we were poor. We just didn't even know it when I was a kid. No, I was poor and I knew it. It was part of my job to go get the government cheese and the government peanut butter and the government canned meat and the powdered milk when, when it was delivered to the fire station in my little town. My mom collected the green stamps in order to buy groceries and my dad worked three jobs in order to try to pay the bills with five of us kids and all. And, and folks, let me just tell you, I can tell you a story upon story upon times where we literally sat down at the dinner table with no food, plates out, holding hands, praying that God would provide food. And a knock on the door would come and a farmer from down the street would say, hey, uh, we just uh, have leftovers here. Would you guys be interested in it? And it was more than enough food for all of us. And we said, thank you. And God, I could go over and Becky and I could tell you story upon story in the first years of our marriage. But you know what? Because we were poor, we had no choice pretty much but to say, God, we need you. You've got to come through. The rich actually have it harder. Because money makes all the same promises God does. And when you're wealthy, it's harder for you to rely on God because you don't have to as much. Now, in all of us, we don't want to rely on God. We want to rely on ourselves. But the poor have actually been exalted because it's easier for them to be rich in faith. The rich actually have it tougher. I wrote this in my notes. Both wealth and poverty are trials. The test of wealth, though, is the harder trial. It's the harder trial. People say, ah, no, give me the, give me the test of wealth. You, you don't want that. You, you really don't want that. I know people that are friends of mine who are wealthy. And I'm going to talk about the fact that the Bible actually doesn't say it's a sin to be rich. But at the same time, these same people will tell you, if you are wealthy and have a lot of stuff, you have a lot more worries. A lot more worries. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, listen, there your heart will be also. So if you've got a lot of treasures here on the earth, your heart's going to tend to follow there. Jump down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve or worship God and money. Go to Matthew 19. Look at verses 23 through 26. Matthew 19, 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I love how after that, Peter says, oh, by the way, if you notice, we left everything and we're destitute, <laughs> you know. And Jesus said, relax, I'm paying attention, you know. But don't miss this. 
It's hard for rich people to get into heaven. They've actually received the greater test. It's easier for poor people to come to faith because they realize their need. We all have the same need, but it's easier for them to realize it. Now, it is possible, though, to be wealthy and follow God. But the key is back in James chapter 1, verse 11. Look at James chapter 1 again in verse 11. It says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and it wither and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of what? His pursuits. Don't miss that. The Bible does not say that to be rich is a bad thing. But the Bible says if you're rich, be very, 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 very careful. Because you've got a hard trial. But this passage is talking about the rich people who are using their wealth for their pursuits. The Bible teaches that there are those that God can entrust with money. So that they will use it in the way that God has in, has in mind. And he use, they'll use it for his purposes. And so there are wealthy people that are going to heaven. It's not impossible. Man, it's hard. But with God, all things are possible. But there are those who are wealthy, but their attitude is they're not holding on to their wealth. This is all God's. They hold it loosely. And if he tells them to give it, they give it. The interesting thing is, and the Bible promises for each of us, doesn't mean we'll all be super wealthy or millionaires. But listen, the Bible does promise, though, if you are willing to let God use you as a conduit for giving things away, he will give you more so that you can keep giving it away. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to Luke chapter 12, and then we'll jump to 2 Corinthians 9. Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this, and I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verses 6 through 15. Paul's talking to them about being generous in their giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, what's that next word? Will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So don't miss this. God's actually saying, look, if you will give and you do it generously of your own volition, not because it's a rule, but because you trust me that I'll take care of you. I and I know your heart that you will be a conduit for me. I'm going to give you more so that you can keep sharing more and letting people see more and more of who I am. And as you give toward the things that God tells you to give toward, you will actually learn to become generous and the fun of being generous. And God gives you more so you can keep being more and more generous. But these wealthy people aren't storing it up for themselves. They're getting this wealth for what? For God's purposes, not in their pursuits, but in God's pursuits. Some of you think, and I've had so many people say, Pastor, when I win the lottery, I'm going to give some to the church. What they're really saying is, when I get wealthy, then I'll give. They don't have wisdom. They get it all backwards. Jesus said, if you're not faithful with little, you won't be faithful with much. You want to prove that you would do that? Give it now. Share now. And then God will multiply it. Is it a sin to be rich? No. We'll close tonight with one last passage. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verses 17 through 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty in order to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take a hold of that which is truly life. James says, you want wisdom? Ask God. And let me give you a picture of wisdom. Let the lowly per person boast in their exaltation and the rich person in their humiliation. I want you to start seeing things the way God sees them, not the way man sees things. As we start going into the book of James deeper, you're going to start to realize how much how we see things is not how God sees them. And I think God said that in Isaiah 55. Your ways are not my ways and my ways aren't your ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. So, folks, as we start diving into this book, because there's going to be a wealth of stuff, and as we get closer and closer to the end and the return of Jesus, I pray that we would not be people that are just happy to be Christian and going to heaven, but they would become more and more in love with Jesus and fuller of wisdom. That's only going to happen as we humble ourselves and ask him for it and don't get off the operating table of our trial until he's done the surgery. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.